Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Phil Sturgeon. Phil is currently a software engineer at the New York City-based carpooling app Ride. In the past, he's built websites in a number of languages and frameworks, and he was a core contributor to CodeIgniter, FuelPHP, and also PyroCMS, which he founded and later sold. Phil is organized and spoken at a number of conferences, and he blogs regularly at philsturgeon.uk. He also contributes to a podcast series called PHP Town Hall, which you can find at phptownhall.com. Phil is the author of the LeanPub book, Build APIs You Won't Hate, as well as Catapult into Pyro CMS, and the co-author of PHP The Right Way. Recently, Phil had the distinction of appearing in both the list for the top 10 best-selling LeanPub books for 2015 with Build APIs You Won't Hate, and at the same time in the list of the top 10 most popular books in 2015 with PHP The Right Way. In this interview, we're going to talk about Phil's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Phil, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Hey, man. How you doing? And thanks for sitting through that, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's great. I need you to like follow me to parties and introduce me in that way. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us how you first became interested in programming and how you ended up in New York. Yeah, um, I've been programming for a really long time. I've been I started when I was about 11 years old, interestingly, um, with, with HTML and CSS and uh, was making a lot of uh, this big games review website. And um, it was a very complicated manual process just using HTML all the time. So uh, in the end, someone taught me all about PHP and that was when a whole new world of, uh, of opportunities opened itself up for me. So I've been hacking around with various content management systems, building my own systems and frameworks and all that sort of stuff for a really long time. Um, then... Not entirely sure how I ended up in NYC. It just happened. Uh, I some a company reached out. They were looking for somebody to CTO for them. Uh, they were interested in in PHP after recently having a bit of a mess of a Rails app made for them, and they just wanted to to not not have to do Rails anymore. And uh, and they they reached out to me after seeing my work with Fuel PHP, um, which was a relatively popular PHP framework, and and they thought that I'd be a good fit for for that job. And now I'm here. Great. Um, and did you, I, one question I'd like to ask people is um, if, if you got a computer science degree or something like that along the way, because I find about half the people I ask say no. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I don't have a degree, annoyingly. And it's an interesting story, actually, if you have a second. Um, I have a higher national diploma uh, from the UK, which is like the first two years of what a degree would be. An extra, a third year would turn that into a degree. Um, but the year after I got my HND, they, they changed it from being the higher national diploma to being the foundation degree. It's just literally changed the name, not the meaning of it. But um, because everyone hears the word degree, they think it's much better. So one extra year and I would have technically had a degree. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I know there's a discourse about that in um, academia in the UK as well, where um, it used to be that the term professor, you know, was not as, as high a distinction as it is in Germany, Germany, but was certainly meant more than just teaching at a university. And a lot of a lot of there's a kind of reverse snobbery in the way some professors in the UK will call themselves professors, even though they're not, um, <laughs> uh, because then then if they come to the United States, they get treated like they don't have their PhD yet or something like that. So oh, wow. it's it's very strange. Um, anyway, I was wondering. Um, so w when did you found Pyro CMS, and you know what motivated you to do that, and just tell a little bit of the story around that? Yeah. Um... I'm a little fuzzy on the dates, but basically when I came out of college, uh, I started my own, my own company, just a really small four or five person, uh, development agency. We did a lot of, um, 
a lot of like five page websites, you know, really basic websites. Like if this is a hotel booking uh, system where it would be the same blog, the same contact us page, the same page manager, and then this extra module that would be a booking module, or it would be like a, a car showroom website, which would be the same stuff. And then this one extra module. So um, we, we built a lot of that ourselves and we kept building the same stuff over and over again. And we realized that it was a bit daft. Um, but at the time, I'd been working with a lot of other content management systems, and I really didn't like any of them. Uh, I think most of them have made huge improvements in the last couple of years. But at the time, there wasn't a PHP CMS around that was simple enough or free or cheap enough to, to make a lot of sense. We could have used Expression Engine, but the budgets were small. And, and with Expression Engine, you need to pay about $1,000 just to just to get started and things like that. So um, I ended up turning the code that we had into a really basic CMS for use at that company. And then literally every single project we did was just deploy the CMS and add in a new custom module. And then when we had another hotel booking website, it would be install the hotel booking module, right? And and every project we had made this whole collection of code better. We started to amass modules and, and everything else. So um, then the recession hit in about 2009 somewhere, I suppose, maybe 2010. And uh, my clients just stopped paying. So the company didn't last very much longer than that. And uh, I had all this code and I thought it's kind of a shame to just throw this away, like just delete it, you know, buy. Um, so I open sourced it. And initially, it had terrible feedback. Oh, um, no. it, looked, it looked terrible. Um, it was using the Codeigniter framework, which was very popular. And so that got it some points, but it looked awful. Um, and luckily, at that point, some friends of mine, uh, we, we kind of all contributed together and, uh, and made it much, much better over the next few versions. And about six months later, we had a version we were really happy with. About another year after that of of um, just really just seeing a lot of usage. Like we got it on GitHub and it was the most watched PHP CMS on GitHub um, apart from like WordPress, which was just a mirror. It wasn't even on GitHub, you know, so it got pretty popular. And, and based off the back of that, we made a, um, a professional module, a professional distribution, which for $80, you could get some extra functionality and, and, and some pretty cool stuff. You could white label it and all that. So that's that's kind of how Pyro CMS ended up coming about. It's a bit of a, like a natural evolution story as opposed to like, I'm going to make a CMS because the CMS market is so insanely flooded that no one's going to go, this is where I can make some money. This is, you know, this is going to be the next big catch. <laughs> and did you do anything specific looking back on it to get all that attention sort of eventually when you were happy with how it looked um, on GitHub? That was also a bit of a natural evolution as well, I think, as well as a lot of luck. Um, I It was built using Codeigniter, and at the time there wasn't a finished Codeigniter CMS. There were a lot of half-done attempts, but there weren't any like that. Um, it was also when, when the whole concept of PHP frameworks was quite new. They've been around since 2006. Um, most of them weren't great or weren't publicly used for a couple of years after that, so... Around about 2009, 2010, we were the first Codeigniter CMS that was completely done that, that had the features that people needed. Um, that combined with the fact that I was very active in the community. I, I blogged a lot. I wrote about Codeigniter a lot. I had a, a relatively large following of people that liked that framework. Um, because of that, people would see about Pyro CMS, and, and that was it. There wasn't a, like an AdWords campaign or anything you know, marketing like that. It was just naturally people started using it. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thanks. I think um, I think uh, a lot of people sort of, you know, when they're telling stories about how something became a success, they're sort of like, I was working in the movie store and then I won my Oscar. Um, <laughs> and it's really good to hear 
good to hear the details of how people get from A to B. And um, on that note, actually, I was wondering, I know that you've, you're quite a popular conference speaker. And I think a lot of people who, you know, themselves sit in, sit at conferences, wonder, how do I get up on stage? And do you have any advice for anyone um, looking to, to make that move? Again, the way that it worked for me might not be how it works for other people. Um, to explain that, the first few conferences I spoke at, I organized myself. <laughs> so um, again, Coding Nighter, if people listening don't know what that is, I'm sorry to keep mentioning it, but uh, I ran the Coding Nighter conference. Um, I took it over from somebody else because they did a terrible job the first time around. And uh, the next couple um, I organized, and we had three of them, and we got a bunch of speakers in. And um, yeah, I, I spoke at those to give myself a little bit of practice. But apart from that, I, I did a couple of... Um, I did a few meetups and user groups and things like that. And that's a great place to get the confidence to speak. Uh, because if you have a local user group, um, whichever one it is, and there's maybe 20, maybe 60, maybe a hundred people that go, um, if you can go and speak there, then unless you've done a few things wrong, like they're going to be your friends, they're going to be people that, you know, and, um, and therefore the feedback will be much better. It will be less scary because you're looking back at familiar faces, um, and, and it's much easier to kind of dip your toe in at the local, um, at the local user group than it is the conference stage. And then once you've done that a couple of times, you just apply literally every website has, um, has a, most conferences have a call for papers website. Um, there's a few, there's a few websites around that list these, and I really wish I could remember what they're called right now. Um, if you Google search call for papers, conferences, you'll find one, but, um, just apply and, and make a good abstract, ask your friends for feedback, put it up on Twitter, see what they say. Um, and, and just uh, apply and go. The, uh, the other approach really quickly is, um, most conferences you attend will have a uncon track. Uh, a lot of people, uh, the uncon is usually just a, a room that has a stage and a microphone, just like the main stage. Uh, but they, they won't have a planned schedule for it. So you can just go there, sign up and say, I've done this one uh, at my local user group and I want to do it now and I think it'll be good and do it there. Um, and then if people like it, you'll get good feedback on the internets and then maybe you can apply for a proper one at a different conference soon. Speaking about doing things in, with groups of people that you know, um, I saw that you're involved with an organization called the League of Extraordinary Packages or the PHP League. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. I love the name, by the way. Um, <laughs> I saw in one of your blog posts, I think that some people didn't get the joke, which I find extraordinary. But obviously, League of Extraordinary Packages comes from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, <laughs> right. the, the, the movie. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the League does and how it got formed. Absolutely. Um, I think... I, I'd been quite used to releasing code under Code Igniter or PyroCMS or FuelPHP or under the names of any of the kind of open source projects that I'd been uh, managing. But when I moved to New York and became CTO of a tech startup, like I had a fair few responsibilities. I had a few, you know, things on my shoulders and I, I didn't have the time or the ability or the need to to work on Code Igniter, FuelPHP or PyroCMS. So I ended up quitting all of those things, um, which left me in a really weird position when I was releasing some code. I was building this code uh, for use at the, at the startup called Capture. Um, I, I was building this code and I realized that I should release it as a, as a package because it was actually really useful and it didn't exist as far as I knew in the PHP world. So I wanted to work out where to put it. But with 
with PHP these days, you need to have a namespace for it. It didn't in the past, but a namespace can just be, it can be your surname or your company name or a nickname or anything else. And I, I started thinking, like, what would that namespace be? Would it be um, Phil Sturgeon? It seems really egotistical to make people write my name into their code. And, like, Sturgeon is a bit weird. And I was like, do I come up with a nickname? I used to be called Squared. Oh, Squared's another company. I can't be called that. Um, and I just had this really hard time doing it. And I kind of asked my friends if, if they'd ever thought of it. And they'd had the exact same problem. So in the end, me and a few friends tried coming up with uh, some 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 names that we could use. And I think the PHP Super Best Friends Club was was in there. That was a winner for a while, but the, the namespace was hard. Would, would you do like call it Besties or PHBSBF or whatever? Like eventually somebody suggested the League of Extraordinary Packages. My concern was that people would think it was an indecent joke, but luckily that one hasn't been the, the feedback so far. Um, and... And yeah, we, we basically, we just released a bunch of code under this name. It's me and a few of my friends. We've got OAuth2 servers and OAuth2 clients and um, like Fly System, which is a PHP package that helps you use one uh, standard um, interface. And you can, you can con- uh, work with different file systems like uh, the local file system, S3, FTP, all these different things. Like they're just really, really interesting, um, really unique packages that focus as much as they can on quality uh, without taking shortcuts or anything else. And, and we all work on them together and share responsibilities and, and it's, it's a fun little group of people. That's fantastic. Um, I also have a question about ride um, where you're working now. Um, it's, as I said, in the intro, a New York city based carpooling app. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what ride, it's such an interesting space, what, what rides larger mission is and what your role is there. Oh, for sure. Um, it's it's an interesting space, and there's a lot of competition. We've managed to find ourselves a little niche that isn't isn't being uh, fulfilled already. So, um, when people say carpooling, and it's an iPhone app, everyone thinks that's like Uber and Lyft, right? But um, things like Uber, Lyft, Get, Via, all of those um, similar apps, they are basically. I am currently at point A. I would like to get to point B. Can you get me there now, please? And and somebody will come and pick you up. There's a paid driver. And they will take you to where you're going. Now, that's fine as a one-off, but um, imagine if you lived in a town where there's 10,000 people and you had a one-hour-long commute to work every day. There's no way that you can just you know, stop using your car and request an Uber every single day because what if you've only got a few Uber drivers in that town? What if they take the day off? What if they're busy? What if they're not near you? Um, so trying to use uh, Uber or Lyft or Via or Get or anything else for um, schedule-based, like repetitive, like literal carpooling, like like back in the good old days, carpooling um, it is quite hard with those services. So we help we help people that already know each other um, invite each other, and and then it, in that case, it just helps you manage the money sharing. Um, and if you don't know people that want to carpool, then we'll help you uh, be matched with people automatically. So based on your schedules and based on where you're going, uh, we'll find you a really efficient match that helps get you from home to work and back again every single day on on the on the same schedule and. Um, and so far, no one else is doing that. I think Uber, um, Uber Hop, I think, is the name of the one they're starting to roll out, which which does things a little differently. But it's um, it's an interesting space, anyway. It's really interesting, actually. I hadn't thought of it that way before. But the you know one of the ways many products and services, one of the divides that products will fall on one side on or the other side of is is it something that you can rely on when you need it for something serious, right? So, for example. You know, I make the distinction between, I don't use it, but um, Outlook and Gmail, right? 
if you can go to jail for sending the wrong email, you use Outlook. Um, <laughs> and if it kind of doesn't matter that much, you use Gmail. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways of explaining that. But one of the differences is that, you know, in Gmail, it'll actually hide the email address of the person you're sending it to. And like no one, whoever designed that has never sent a serious email in their life, right? <laughs> and, uh, they impose well, that on all of us. Um, and, and well, that's that, how things like Hillary Clinton sending it from her wrong account happen, right? That's just... <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, but I'd never thought of that. So that's very interesting. So in the, in the world of sort of arranging rides, that ride um, is on the side of people, on the side of the divide where it's getting to work, right? You can't be late. Yeah. Yeah, for now it's for now it's definitively getting to work. Like we we ha you sign up and you put in your itineraries and it's the same time every day and and it will go to and back every day, uh, which is a, a little bit uh, rigid. Which is why we're rolling out um, a few cool new features in in the future to make it a bit more organic. Like we're going to ride today, we're going over there, and and you can have a bit more control about you know where you're going and what you're doing. Because there's been a few times where I've I've me and my friends go paintballing over in Staten Island. It's quite a drive away, right? So there's 10 of us. We need to take two cars um, and we all live all over the place. So us trying to arrange who goes in what car and where, when we don't all necessarily know each other or where each other lives is a bit of a pain in the backside. So if we could just all jump in to, uh, all jump in to, to ride and just be like, we want to go to this paintball place and it just matches us all up, then that would be really handy. And then like money's paid for and that you don't have that situation where like two people have Venmo and one person has square cash and the other one doesn't like technology. So he just gives you a fiver and you forget about it. Like that whole thing can be solved with, with apps quite well, I think. That's really fascinating. Is Ride, does Ride have kind of an enterprise version where people who have companies where they provide services like that can then use Ride? for their um, service we don't have any of that fancy stuff just yet that, that would be interesting um we we the most most of our users are accumulated in a b2b fashion um so we do work with a lot of uh a lot of larger companies providing their carpooling for them um so we'll talk to to big companies uh, i can't think of one i'm allowed to mention so i won't but a big company that company will give us um, a certain amount of money per year and then um, we will provide them with uh, statistics and information on like how many um, tons of CO2 they're saving and how many cars are no longer going to be in their car park so that they know that they can sell off one of their car parks to a Starbucks or whatever. So we get we, we work with them with large companies in, in that sort of way to, to give them value uh, back. And the whole, you know, know how much CO2 you're saving will get you money off your taxes or whatever because you're, you're doing a good thing. Um, but yeah, we, we don't have any other sort of fancy integrations yet. Sure. Yeah, I know that's fascinating. Um, I was also wondering, I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, but, um, it, I suppose rides relationship to the foretold switch to autonomous cars would, I would be, if, if that were to happen, um, uh, would be less controversial than for other ride sharing apps right because yeah makes zero difference to us if you happen to be interacting with the car or not um we have four people they're in a ride any one of them can be the driver they can swap halfway like none of this stuff really matters because we don't have paid drivers we don't lose out if no one's actually got their arms on the wheel you know so that's okay yeah that's that's really interesting um yeah i can imagine especially for if companies in the automated driving future start arranging um for you know maybe less rigid um commuting patterns um something like that would be really really useful um 
Yeah, you can use a helicopter if you want. <laughs> yeah, if only. Um, <laughs> especially, especially where you are in, in Brooklyn, just getting over to Manhattan would be. Uh, it's the only way easy. to get around in, in any sort of reasonable time, but it's uh, it's a little bit pricey. I prefer the train. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you a question about um, something you were involved in recently called, I think, Geeks Giving for AIDS. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> where you, I think you, you went on like a really long bike ride, like 285 miles. And you, um, in addition to doing that to, to raise funds, you did two interesting things. One was you um, involved, you included discounts to, I think, buying your books and even books by other Lean Pub authors if people would donate. And you also went a month without drinking. Um, <laughs> right. So both are actually really interesting aspects of that to me. Um, I was wondering, what was it, was it easy to get other people that like other Lean Pub authors to contribute books to your, to your plan? Um, yes, I, I've actually done this twice. I did this once in the past and I just did the discounts and things like that. And, and, um, it was roughly the same, the same plan and the same bike ride. And, um, I just kind of asked my friends if they'd do me a favor the first time. And I, I pretty much, I, I mostly only approached people that I knew pretty well, like people I'd met at conferences and like had a drink with, or that, you know, we, we hang out regularly. Um, and then I realized that it's actually, it, it was actually quite good marketing for them. So the second time I didn't feel quite so bad running around asking other people um, just purely because a lot of the time getting any sort of coupons out there is pretty helpful. Some people say don't overdo the coupons, but um, I really find that they help. Um, another little trick I found is that if you can stay in the, in the top 10 on lean pub, um, then you get a lot of sales just by being on the top 10. Um, so quite often like throwing out some coupons, you might make a little bit less money that way, but you get more money when you're up, up top. So, um, most of my friends are, are happy to give out a couple of coupons, especially if it means that, um, you know, the money's all going to, to charity and, uh, yeah, it, it worked out really well. There was lean pub people. There was other random people that, that do video courses and, and all, all sorts of, all sorts of discounts. Um, and it was because I'd done it twice that the second time I thought I'll throw in an extra bonus. I'll do a month no booze because um, I, I like I like to party. I like to have fun. I go out with my friends a fair bit, and um, and the that was the extra clincher for a lot of people because a lot of people were like, "We're not going to keep paying Phil to ride bikes. Phil just likes riding bikes. We're not going to keep putting our hand in our pocket for this." Uh, so in the end, I was like, "Well, okay. If I if I also don't drink, they're like, whoa, he's serious. We should we should put some money in there.'" <laughs> I'm really curious, but just very briefly, I had I have a friend who um, did that once, and he said he had a very unexpected consequence of it was that he was tired all the time and slept a lot more than he <laughs> did normally. And I was just wondering if it had that effect on you. Uh, yeah, I did. I got a fair amount of sleep, and I also started a few side projects, which I now don't have the time to maintain. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was just like hyper productive for a month, and. Uh, and it was really fun. I, I wrote a few articles. I think I, I I started working on a video course along the same lines as my API book. I did a whole bunch of things that um that I'm going to have to finish up now uh, yeah. in, instead of instead of drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was wondering um, also about the about the charity project. Um, we've got a the Lean Pub for Causes program. I'm not sure if you're actually aware of that, but Lean Pub authors can share royalties from their sales with. Um, various causes that have signed up. You just pick one and you can share with it, um, including PHP Women, I think, which is which is a cause that you, oh, really? you're, you're familiar with. Yeah. 
Yeah, I haven't seen that on there. When I was selecting my group, I, I've I've been donating to the EFF for the entirety of the time I've had the book on there. Um, at one point when the EFF were really losing, I put it up to 20 and I think even to 30%. Um, but now that they're they're winning a few more battles, it's back down to 10 because I need the money myself. Um, but I didn't know PHP Women was on there. Yeah. That's great news. Yeah, they they joined up a little while ago. But yeah, okay, thanks for that. I actually, I, I should have known that, but I forgot that, that you were supporting the EFF. Um, that's I support them with stuff too. Um, yeah. And yeah, they have been having more victories lately, which is great. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting the sort of symbiosis one can arrange between doing good things for other people and doing good things for oneself at the same time, um, which is one of the reasons we started the Causes program. Um, uh so I wanted to ask you a question um, about that's related to Build APIs You Won't Hate, which is one of the big LeanPub bestsellers. Um, uh, I know that over the summer you wrote an article about some difficulty you had with um, getting a work visa to the States. Um, and I know, uh, yeah. I know that's a really long story, so I'm not going to ask you to repeat it. And I'll, <laughs> I'll post the links when we publish the transcription of this blog to your blog post where you talk about it. But I did want to ask, I know that actually your, your, your book, Build APIs You Won't Hate, actually played a role in that story. And I was wondering if you could tell us what, a, a little bit about that. Um, I don't think it'd be too much of an exaggeration to say that it stopped me from being dead or homeless. Um, <laughs> I was going through a really tough time um, where I, the, the, the startup that brought me over to the, the United States, they ran out of money um, without warning me about it and therefore one day everyone was just fired and the company was bankrupt and it was pretty terrible and the type of visa i have makes you tied to the one specific job so without diving into it too much basically i i think i popped off out in the country to go and speak at a, a conference in barcelona some friends of mine were running it i didn't want to cancel on them um, and then i wasn't allowed back in uh, to, the, to the United States unless I came back on holiday and it was one of these ridiculous situations where I was um, not allowed to work so I couldn't do any freelance stuff really um, but I also couldn't get rid of my apartment because my apartment was uh, on a lease that they wouldn't let me out of and and the only thing that for the three months I was there on holiday before I ended up having to get the heck out of the country entirely uh, my only source of income was actually lean pub so it worked out perfect timing um in that the first month I collected royalties from LeanPub was the, um, it, it started right at the start of that. So the whole time through, like the only money I had coming in was LeanPub royalties because that's not working. I can do that legally. Um, so it worked out really well. And, and eventually I, I managed to get rid of my apartment and I kind of went international for a while. And there was a, like a, a conference in South Africa and a conference in Turkey. So I was like, I'm just going to hang out in South Africa for a while and I'm just going to mess around in Turkey. Um, so actually, <laughs> it sounds like a, a first world problems situation of being like, oh, I had to go to these places. It was amazing. Um, and I finished off the book on this like on this rooftop bar, at a really cheap hostel in Turkey. Um, and it was it was scarily whilst the the riots were happening, the uh, Taksim Square riots were happening. I could hear them all happening. And I was like, I'm just going to stay over here and, and drink my martini um, while that all happens and finish working on my book. Um, it was, it was really weird, uh, but it was, it was really helpful. And without LeanPub, uh, you know, making me that income, I really don't know what I would have done. So, well, I was really glad to read about that. And, and it's really <laughs> fascinating hearing about it directly from you that, you know, a book can, can play a role like that in someone's life. Um, it's yeah. just, it's just great to hear. Um, 
Actually, I have a question. So um, I myself have lived and worked abroad. I lived in the UK for nine years. Um, so I've got a little bit of, you know, experience with what it's like to do that. Um, and you're in the States right now. And I was wondering what your take is on the sort of dis discussion around immigration that's happening in the Republican primary. Is that something that's has an effect on you at all? Or is, is it something you think about per in personal terms? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because most of these people that are complaining about immigration just haven't quite realized that they're racist yet. Um there's a number of times I've 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 been in a in a in a bar or somewhere, sat around in public and and uh you hear people say, Oh, all these immigrants coming over here and taking our jobs or whatever and um I must be like, Hey, excuse me, I'm I'm an immigrant. Um I don't believe I was taking anyone's job because they tried for months to find somebody and then eventually they had to bring me over at great expense to them and, and, and the nation and some lawyers um, just so that the job could be done. Um, are, you, are you mad at me as well? And they'll be like, oh, oh no, we don't, we don't mean people like you. I mean, oh, you mean people from other countries. Other countries don't like people that happen to be, you know, of different color to you. Oh, I, I see. And then like they slowly start to realize that they've just been racist. Um, the whole stuff on immigration right now is pretty mad because – America is notoriously hard to get visas in. I think my, my story, um, the very brief one I gave you, but uh, if you read the articles, like I've had a really hard time getting a visa and staying and working in the country. And I'm, you know, making a reasonable salary. And if they gave me a, a visa or a green card, then they would be getting quite a reasonable amount of tax every year. And there's a lot of smart people that want to get into the country that want to work and, and contribute to society. And they just can't. And it's really daft. I know you can't just throw open the uh, floodgates and let everyone in, but um, it just it really blows my mind that that it's so difficult to get and work here. Because the, the very basic version, if you're trying to get a visa to work in America, you either have to get an O-1 visa, which is the Alien of Extraordinary Ability, which me and a few of my friends have got. Great name, right? Um, but to get those is really hard. You have to have books out and conference speaking and be a judge on a panel at some big sh whatever. Um, you have to do all these big hard things and you have to get like articles on net tuts and wherever and then they'll give you a visa and that costs about ten thousand dollars to obtain and it takes months to work on um but that is is often a better option and is quicker than trying to apply for a h1b visa which used to be a case of um first come first serve but now it's a lottery and it might take you three years to get the visa so if you're trying to get a, if you're trying to get a h1b um you have to apply in april you might get one in October or you get one next October or next October or next October. And, and it's ridiculous. Like who is trying to, who's going to a job interview saying, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to work for you. When can I start it's any point in the next three years, to be honest, probably around in October. Like it just never, it never works. It never makes any sense. So how the hell are people meant to get visas and come and work in the country when the option is pay an insane amount of money, which you probably don't have or, just wait forever or, or like marry someone illegally. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it sounds incredibly difficult. And it's one of those things that, that makes the debate even more difficult to listen to uh, from abroad. And I can yeah. only imagine what it's like, cause you know, at least, you know, in other countries, one doesn't run into the advocates for that kind of thing um, so much, but if you're living there, I imagine it's just a part of daily furniture every once in a while to, to have to defend yeah. Your, your own situation.
Actually, one thing to add into that actually is that unfortunately, people often conflate uh, the idea of making it easier to obtain a work visa with well, you should just let people work remote. Um, I'm a massive fan of remote working, and it definitely has its place. Um, some companies are 100% remote, and that works for them, and and I'm really impressed with that. And I'd like to, I'd like to experience a company that can be 100% remote successfully someday. But um, the the important thing to remember is that most companies even that do have a large number of remote staff do have people on site and um a few startups the startup i've worked at now we have 20 25 uh engineers and two of them are in the new york office the rest of them are in south america they're in argentina brazil colombia um and and that's a pretty spread out team that's pretty remote but the benefit is that we have we have two engineers and a few people on in the office so that we can like have have those important meetings that can't be done via Slack and that can work on those things. So you want to have some people that can actually face to face, and then other people remote. And the thing that people forget about remote employees is that you still have to see each other sometimes. Like if you if you've never met your staff or the people you work with, you have this really gross, weird, isolated feeling at work, and it's not something that people stick around with very long. They'll do a they'll do a year there and they'll wander off. Maybe if they've got families, they're more happy with it and they just like being around their family. But um, we we often find at ride we fly the Americans down to South America or the you know the them up to us and we find flying people around quite a lot is a good way to kind of fix that remote you know distance situation but it's also really expensive so you can't just always replace uh, on-site workers with remote workers in every instance where you need someone to work in the office where you might end up getting them a visa they're not going to be the correct you know, person for remote working. So it, they're really not the same thing. And whenever you try to have a conversation about making it easier for immigration um, and, and visas to happen for, for tech employees or for ge- people in general, you always get people run out and go, well, ah, remote work, I remote work and you should do that more often. You're like, it's not, it's not the same. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know it, exactly what you're talking about. And one, one of the consequences as well that people often don't think about or take into account maybe until they've done it is that you can kind of end up with like the cool kids and the not cool kids. Yeah. And the cool kids are the ones who are at HQ in the native country to the, to the company and they see each other and talk to each other and hang out all the time and other people don't. And it's even, even little things like not getting the end joke and having to have it explained to you that that can build up into a narrative that you're completely outside of over time. And so, yeah, that's another one of the costs of remote working is that that sort of cohesion yeah, absolutely. It's also interesting. I hadn't thought about this at all, but from a from a perspective of immigration policy, um, you probably want fewer remote workers because they don't pay taxes in your country. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the money's just going straight out to some other random country, and you never see it again. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's outsourcing from that perspective, right? Um, uh, anyway, mo- moving on to um, uh, to APIs you won't hate. Um, I was wondering, you know, maybe money aside, what was your motivation to write? A book on that topic um interestingly i never really thought it would make that much money i'm pleasantly surprised that it's done okay um the original plan was that i wanted to i blog a lot and i really enjoy blogging i really enjoy writing and um i originally did this like really silly little blog post of just bullet points of like things you should think about and it was like a bit flippant and jovialistically rude but um it was just like do this do that yeah you muppet and and just kind of you know really rapid fire like that and people 
it, it was actually really well received. People were like, that's, I hadn't thought about this. Could you expand on this? Could you explain this more? And I kind of used that bullet point list to then kind of um, notch out some some sections and chapters. And it was originally like nine chapters long. And as I started writing, I realized that it was going to be more like 13 chapters long. Um, and it took me about, it took me a couple of weeks to really finish up the first post. And I thought, if, oh, God, if it's going to take me a couple of weeks or a month for every single one of these chapters, it's going to take me a year to get this blog series done. Um, so, like, I've, I've never put adverts on my blog. I've never really tried to do that. I, I don't like to try and monetize everything I ever do. Um, although that's changed a little bit because of uh, the, the tax situation. But um, I, I, So I don't really try and worry about just, like, building good content on the blog so that it can, it can uh, make ad sales or whatever. I just... Uh, I just usually just like enjoy writing, but when I realized how long it was going to take me to, to finish off that entire book. And, and I also worried about the the quality. Like if, if I take on this project, that's going to take me a year and a half of just writing these articles. Firstly, I'm not going to get to write about anything else, which is going to be really boring. Um, but secondly, I worry that the quality would be much lower. Whereas when I realized if I was to make it as a book, then I could, I could actually put even more time in and even more effort and, and, and maybe get an editor later on, which, uh, unfortunately I did too late. A lot of the reviews happened before I got the editor involved. So I got a four out of five instead of a five, but, um, that, that was the motivation really. It was like, I don't want to just knock out this nonsense uh, and I don't want it to take forever for nothing. And I don't want to have to like jam adverts on my website to, to cover it. So I'll just do it as a book and see what people are willing to pay. And happily people were willing to pay quite a decent amount and they, they were happy to buy it early on as well. So I could, I could fuel the development of the book, um, with the, the early sales. And is that one of the reasons you chose lean pub? I mean, amongst all the options there are out there, was it the ability to sort of hit the publish button before it was done, done? Yeah, that was exactly it. Um, a lot of people just said, you're an idiot. Why are you giving them 20% or whatever of your royalties? And, um, and it, it, that was never the point. Like I could make a hundred percent of not much. Uh, I could, I could, you know, wait until I finished the entire book. And then like a year later or six months later, I could then get 100% of the sales, which doesn't, you know, great. Um, or I could do it earlier on and do it better. Um, and, and just having this group of people that were kind of used to the concept of, of books being developed on the go meant that people wouldn't be shocked or annoyed when they got a half done book. Um, and, and being able to like send out email updates, all that sort of thing. Like it just seemed like a really good way of doing it. And I basically did, I did the first chapter as a blog, I think. So I already had that one there for free and just like tweaked it up a little bit. And then the next two chapters I did in the space of another month, I think. And then I put those three chapters on lean pub and put the price for like eight ninety nine or something. And then just went, go, you can buy it now. See what happens. And, uh, and luckily people started buying it and, and the more people that bought it, the quicker I worked on it and the more time I devoted to it. And, and then, uh, and then it was done. Oh, that's, that's a great story. Um, yeah, just one, one comment is that, uh, our royalty rate is 90% minus 50 cents per sale. So it's about, it's about 10%, oh, um, nice. but, but we're, <laughs> but we're very, we're very, um, familiar with and sympathetic to the arguments that certain authors have of, you know, why would I give, why don't I just go, why don't I do it myself? Um, yeah. And it's when you have needs for other, I mean, we think that LeanPub is a great platform and people should publish their books, all their books on it. Um, but, but it's very understandable that one would hear that argument, especially when the concept of lean publishing is still relatively unfamiliar and people might not be aware of all the value that you can get out of doing things that way and being part of a community where people already understand 
what the value is in that. And actually, I wanted to ask one of the values that a lot of authors find in that is actually the feedback that they get from the community when the book isn't finished. Because often the very first people you attract are the ones who most desperately need whatever answers you're providing, right? So like, they would rather have their problem partially solved now than never solved. Because if the book, if a book about it came out in a year, that's far too late for them to get done what they need to get done. And I was wondering, was, was interacting with readers while you were writing it something that you engaged in actively or did things just come to you or did you just ignore it? <laughs> uh, all three. Uh, no, some, some people got in touch with, with feedback that was absolutely on the money and I, and I implemented it as it came in. Some people gave me suggestions for things to add or links to include or, or things like that. Um, so there, there was a certain amount of, of user participation, which was really helpful that I wouldn't have just got if I was doing it in an echo chamber. And um, I also... <laughs> I don't like to advocate, you know, the users will be your beta testers, but there was a certain amount of, a lot of people noticed mistakes. I'm terrible at spelling. I'm terrible at grammar. Um, and a relatively early point. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the reason that you're getting this, this cheaper book is that it's not finished, right? Like it's not done yet. And when it's done, it'll be spot on. But if you need this information soon, if you want it at a discounted price, you might know, you might have some mistakes to deal with, but luckily people were really uh, understanding about that. And there was a lot of, People even sent me some pull requests. Once you started um, supporting GitHub, there were a certain number of people that were like, please add me to this. I promise I won't do anything messed up. Just just let me make a pull request to, to the book. And uh, someone fixed like 100 spelling mistakes in, in one pull request, which was amazing. Um, so the users really helped out there. And yeah, I, the users helped out more than some of my friends did because you know everyone's busy and everyone's got stuff going on. And a few people did say, oh, I'll definitely take a look at that book for you. And then life got in the way and I completely understand why. But there are a few people that, that you know, were going to help a lot that just didn't do anything. And there are a few users that helped more than everyone. So it's impressive. Yeah, that's a really great story. And that's, you know, you know to enable something like that is one of the reasons LeanPub was built in the first place, um, especially, you know, seeing that there are, well, there are people who think very strongly that, you know, they only want to read something when it's done, done. Even those people often find, you know, a um, actually sometimes I'm in a situation where like I really need information or opinion from someone who is really good at this right now. And um, B, they'll often realize, too, that like as annoying when it's in the flow of your reading as, say, a typo might be, the gratification that you get from informing the author about it and having them update is actually something that a lot of people really enjoy, which goes towards explaining why, you know, you'd have someone do like a hundred corrections to your book. Um, you know, people, people enjoy helping each other and participating in projects like that. And it can really, really be gratifying on both sides. Um, mm. uh, I was wondering also about PHP the right way. Um, I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about that project, because that's been quite successful in terms of number of uh, downloads on LeanPub. Uh, yeah, PHP. Oh, sorry, I just kicked the laptop. <laughs> I'll uh, start again there. Uh, PHP the right way is a, is actually a really interesting project because it's not something to say that me and my co-author and Josh Lockhart are co-authors is a, is an interesting way of looking at it. Basically, we started a website called PHP the right way, which is a um, community built um, set of resources, tutorials, guides, tips, advice 
on how to write PHP in a, in a more modern way. Um, if you Google search pretty much anything, like how do I upload files with PHP? One of the first things you get is some absolute piece of garbage that's going to make your website be instantly hacked and just terrible. And it's really unfortunate that that's the, that's the way that that's the way that a lot of people see PHP is that because there's all this garbage out there that's years old, completely irrelevant, um, they think that is what it still is. So we, we decided to make this website that would be kind of a, a link to resource. You could just link to this section. This is how you install it. This is how you use Composer. This is how you do these things. This is, there's loads of information in there. Um, and I wrote probably about 30% of it. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe only 20%, um, but I, one of the top two, uh, three contributors on there. And Josh Lockhart did another really huge amount. He's done 30, 40% somewhere, but, um, it's, it's very much a community built website in the sense that we have, I, I haven't looked at it in a while, but it's a couple of hundred of contributors. It might be like 300 or 400. I don't know. Um, but my contribution, apart from writing a whole bunch of the website was that I built a little, a tiny little PHP script that would pull in the website, which is all written in Markdown and convert it into LeanPub Markdown or Markua. Um, so it would take the, the very, I think it was built in Jekyll originally. So it would take the very specific Jekyll tags and then do a little bit of find and replace and turn them into Markua, which wasn't much of a big deal at all. Um, it's more to do with syntax highlighting and stuff like that. Um, but I turned that into a book and then released it on, uh, on my account, uh, just because it had to go somewhere and Josh didn't want to do it. So, uh, so now it's, now it's up there and every now and then I, I rerun the script and all the updates from the website go and get put up on the, uh, on the lean pub book version. And, uh, people have really enjoyed it. I don't know if they want it for their Kindle or whether they like to print it out or they just wanted a version that wasn't a big website or what, but people have really seemed to have gone for it. It's got like 3000 downloads or something silly. I can't remember. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, I was wondering, so you mentioned before that you, you know, sort of towards the end of, uh, APIs, you won't hate, you got, you got an editor. Um, and I was wondering on that note, when it comes to when people are thinking about, should I, should I publish a book? Um, they're often, one of the things they wonder about is marketing. Um, and I was wondering if you did any specific marketing around the book or was it just something that you kind of would, you know, sort of promote from time to time here and there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really bad at marketing. Um, so luckily my, my editor, uh, Ashley Hockney is also my, um, marketing helper, advisor, friend, um, <laughs> So a couple of things that I started to do, I have a relatively big blog. So I blog about API related things. And then, you know, if the post is tagged with API at the bottom, there'll be a little section that says, and if you like this, there's a book over there, stuff like that, which has got me a couple of sales. I don't track how many, but I know that I saw a noticeable bump when I put it on there. Um, other than that, I found that just trying to make a useful community and a useful resource out of the website I made APAs you won't hate dot com um, be its own website and then people can go there and, and buy stuff. But I'm trying to turn that into more of a community and a more of a um, less of just like a marketing page for a book because that actually makes people want to link to it more. And we now have a Slack group, which is something I added fairly recently, and uh, that got about 500 people in it already. Just by um, I sent out a little blast to the mailing list, which I accrued via LeanPub. Um, 
So I sent a little blast to the uh, to the, the mailing list and just said, hey, everybody, if you liked the book and want to talk about stuff to do with APIs in general, come on over to our Slack group and we can just chat about that in general. And that's got a lot of people talking and a lot of people have invited their friends and then people were like, oh, there's a lot of good information here. I should probably go and check out this book because it's also relevant. Um, and like when I see people uh, posting really cool links to articles, I then can post those from the Twitter account for APIs you won't hate and stuff like that. So um it's this really like self, uh, not self-serving. That's the wrong thing to use, but it's um, it's like uh, beneficial for everyone. Like people get this great place that they can talk, and then that surfaces information that I haven't thought of, gives me ideas for blogs to write and uh, and for things to maybe add to the book in a in a later edition, and then other people get to see that, and it brings them back to the book and back to the Slack group. And yeah, yeah. that that's really fascinating. Um, it sounds like a great a great job. I mean, uh, and you know, I'm I'm just particularly interested because one of our big plans for 2016 at LeanPub is to actually do more to help people build community and understand the sort of new directions and ways communities can be valuable and desirable when they're built around a central piece of content, especially one that can evolve. Um, so that's that's really helpful um, to us actually <laughs> to hear about that <laughs> to hear about that. Um, I was wondering, actually, I just, I guess, um, one lean pub question I would have is, um, uh, customer development is really important to us. And I was, I wanted to ask you if there's one thing we could do that, um, for you that would make lean pub better. What is it? I mean, is there, is there something that always bugged you that we hadn't built or that we had built and didn't implement properly? Or if there was just some fantasy feature you could have, mm. what would that be? If you'd have asked me a month ago, I would have said Bitcoin support, which I know has been something that's been brought up before. Um, I was really interested in in that because I felt like there was this whole world of people out there that wanted to buy books with Bitcoin and didn't have access to to PayPal and stuff. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm missing out on so many potential sales, and there's so many people that could learn that 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 want to and can. And and oh, I wish they had Bitcoin support. Um, but I ended up hacking together something myself and in the space of three months i've had two sales with bitcoin <laughs> so it's a complete waste of time um so i yeah i i used to i used to really think i wanted bitcoin support but i really don't think it matters based on my you know very rudimentary experiment there um the one thing coming from someone who's very technically minded um if if more of the if more of lean pub was open source um, i don't mean anything too core to your business but Something like the um, Markua it, itself, I'm not sure how much of that is or if any of it is, but the systems that help turn uh, that help turn my markdown in this GitHub folder into the book, right? Like if anything in between there could be really uh, tweaked with because I have found and reported a few bugs over the last year or two um, and most of them were finished. Uh, most of them were fixed, but there, there have been a few things that I would have just loved to have jumped in and, and been like, Here's here's the fix for this. Here's how you do that. Because there's certain things that, uh, that that Markdown in general will support, but but that Lean Pub Markdown won't, and that it can always be worked around. But there's a lot of people that don't want to have to think about the differences. And and when I was doing things like importing the uh, importing the PHP the right way website and converting it to that, I found myself changing Markdown on the Jekyll website just so that it would work in the book <laughs> and things like that. So that that's one thing I would like to see more of, but I know that that stuff is, is quite hard to open source really. Well, um, actually on that note, I guess I have a couple things to say. One is that actually our internationalization has been done, you know, community-based, right? Or localization, I should say, sorry, um, where, you know, someone's, you know, the first person who wants to publish a 
uh, uh, a book in French is like, you know, can I, can I localize your page for you? So we actually set something up on GitHub where people could do pull requests for just translating strings of words oh, nice. that, you know, or, yeah. even, or even individual words, right? Like buy now. So you get that on the properly and in, in the right language on the button for that, <laughs> for that book. So that was really helpful. Um, uh, when it comes to Markua, which is, and I don't want to go into too much detail about it because I'll probably get something wrong. And then uh, Peter, uh, my co-founder will, you know, be mad at me, but basically he has been working very hard on finishing up the complete spec for Markua, um, which is going to be published relatively soon. So the whole thing will be publicly available. Um, and um, people will be free to take that and use that to build whatever um, uh, they want, including integrations with other other with products and things like that. And Markua, while it it grew out of LeanPub, is actually a standalone thing. And essentially, the way to look at it is like Markdown was written for you know easily writing web pages in H you know in sort of like uh, a simplified you know. Um, uh, markup language for or syntax for outputting html right um so it was about web pages um markua the idea there is that it's it's for producing documents like books um and so a lot of a lot of there's a lot of you know markdown inspiration in markua but in itself it is it is sort of meant for a for a different purpose from markdown and markua grew out of leanpub flavored markdown which is the thing we've all been using and sort of growing over this time that you were describing, sort of wrestling with a little bit. Um, so when that comes out, we're really interested. We're going to be really interested to know what what authors like you and also what people in the publishing industry have to say, right? Because no one's done for book production what John Gruber did for you know HTML yet. Mm. Uh, we would say anyway. So um, or I would say. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so. there, there are a few around, and people often say like, "Oh, you should have done it in REST." Uh, or the uh, latex or stuff. And yeah. I've worked with a lot of those and they're just gross. That's kind of what I'm getting at when I say no one's done it. I mean, no one's done it in a way that like worked so well, so easily yeah. for so many people. I definitely know it's been attempted and there are other other solutions out there. But yeah, it's tough because um, that's, that's one of the reasons I started uh, doing it with Markdown as well. Like I started building it as a blog post and then I ended up taking that blog post and, and turning it into a book, which was a, a great start. Um, but if I'd had to have learned, you know, REST or some complicated system or one of these, like a lot of the software for these things you have to like install Windows for, and I don't want to do that. So there was a lot of stuff around that seemed way, 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 way over the top and really complicated. And and with Markdown, the or, or Markua, which is based on Markdown, uh, the the learning curve is nothing. You just start writing text and you know how to do links. Like most a lot of people know how to use Markdown. Even my non-technical friends, like a lot of them know what Markdown is and how to, how to work with that. So um, by not enforcing this really complex standard on them, uh, LeanPub is just so easy to get into, into working with. So um, that's definitely a benefit. I'm so glad to hear that because that was one of the reasons that, that Peter and Scott chose to go down that route in the first place. And it was kind of a long-term bet, right? Because changing people's writing practices and publishing practices takes a very long time. So it was a very, you know, uh, a, a very long-term vision for will something along the lines of Markdown end up being used for writing books um, in the future. And it looks like that that is starting to happen, which is just great. Um, so anyway, um, I just wanted to say um, thanks a lot for, for chatting. It's been, it's been a great conversation. Um, and thanks for uh, being a LeanPub author. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks.